0: Today, I am talking to the Archduke of Austria, Edward Hatzberg, and that's coming up next, right here on the Parker J. Cole Show. <music> hi and welcome to the parker j cole show i am your host the queen parker j thank you so much for joining me i'm so excited about this show because i get to talk to edward hasburg the archduke of austria And anyone who knows anything about history knows that he is a descendant of the Habsburg family. And we're going to talk about his new book, The Habsburg Way, and that's coming up in just a few moments. As always, we want to thank our Patreon team for their support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years. And as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash write stuff and see what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net, click on that pink follow button, and you'll never, ever have to miss a show. Subscribe to our new YouTube channel, click that bell, and you'll get notifications of new content, exclusives, and so much more. We're in the process of sending over about 200 of our episodes from over the years to our new YouTube channel, and you'll see those constantly being updated. So we're going to have a lot of content for you in the coming weeks ahead. And without further ado, we're going to introduce my guest co-host today, the Archduke of Austria, Edward Hasberg. Edward, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very fine on this nice warm afternoon in Rome, Italy. Hi, Parker.
0: I love the fact that you said nice warm afternoon in Italy while I'm sitting here cold in Michigan.
1: Didn't want to rub it in.
0: You can rub it in. You can (laughs) rub it in. I will be rubbing it too. If I was living somewhere nice and warm and delicious like Rome, I would rub it in too. (laughs) So I'm glad to have you with me, Edward. It's just such an honor. You are connecting our listeners today with history, with tradition, with the modern world and everything else. There's a lot going on here in this interview on a nonverbal level that I'm just so excited to explore with you. But we're really going to be talking about your new hot-off-the-press book called The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Time. This will give our listeners an opportunity to talk to a royal and to talk to a descendant of royals. And for the American public, this is a really unique idea. It's kind of foreign to us having a royal, what that means. Some of us say, why even have a monarchy? What do you need a monarchy for? What's the big deal about kings and queens? No one really cares. Democracy is the best government form out there. All these types of things. And in your book, you challenge us with these ideas as well as be respectful of different systems of government as well. And so you're very much the diplomat here and I can't wait to dig into that. But there are going to be people who want to know more about you. So go ahead, tell us who Edward Hasberg is.
1: Uh, Edward Habsburg, for the moment, happens to be an ambassador and a diplomat to the Holy See, to the Vatican. That means that I physically sit in Rome in an office and regularly go to Holy Mass here, meet sometimes with the Pope and with the Cardinals and with bishops and other ambassadors. Uh, I sit here with two of my six children and my wife. Uh, we are blessed with six children, and uh, but four of them are already all over the world two of them are studying in the united states and um, one is married one is in vienna and the two youngest are still with us and um, but i've not always been ambassador before that for a while i worked for a catholic bishop in austria as a spokesman i've written novels i've written screenplays for movie and for tv i'm a great science fiction fan i love to read i like you like you parker i wrote and I write, and um, yes, that's about that's about the most important things that I do. Uh, I'm ambassador for Hungary to the Holy See, but if you've read the book, you will realize that the Habsburgs can never only be pegged to one country. But we sort of stand above countries, uh, which keeps us from from um, being too partial to one, and always gives us a perspective that is sometimes above uh, what what other people experience.
0: One thing I have to let our listeners know, when I was stalking Edward on Twitter, I happened to look through his feed, and he had a t-shirt that said Wayland Corporation on it. And when I saw it, I was just shocked, because Wayland Corporation, for my sci-fi nerds out there, is the corporation in the franchise of Aliens, okay? And so I looked, I said, this royal, and this is me, guys. Literally, this is me. This royal can't be an alien fans like me. And then he showed me the t-shirt. I said, blood brother. <laughs> you are yes. my blood brother and I'm your blood sister because yes. I love aliens. Just having that connection of sci-fi was so cool because I was a little bit like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to a descendant of the Habsburgs. I'm really excited to do that. But will we have a point of connection? You know how things, especially here in America, he's a royal. What do they do? Did he drink tea? Do they, you know, eat crumpets? You don't have any idea what it is. And just to have that connection to sci-fi was so cool.
1: But, you know, to all to all the listeners out there, you can't see it. But uh, Parker, in order to ease that connection on our first talk, she has the Enterprise from Star Trek as a background in a Zoom call. So just to make me feel at ease, and uh, and I'm very happy about that.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, and you should be, because a real Trekkie will be comforted by its symbol of the NC-1701-A. My listeners know I'm a fanatic of Star Trek, and I have a philosophy about Star Trek. I will not go into it here, but that was just so cool to have that connection. But now I want to get into your book, The Habsburg Way. And The Habsburg Way are seven principles that you have extrapolated from your family history that have kept the Habsburg as vibrant, as connected and continue the continuity of the family. Dear listener, as you read this book, you're going to sense the family connection throughout history. Here is Edward Habsburg in the year 2023, still connected to his family. I should ask you, what made you want to write this book in the first place?
1: Well, I have to be honest. I have been encouraged by an American friend to write about the Habsburgs um, because he sort of said, we don't know too much about the Habsburgs. And I I noticed on on Twitter, most people only know about the Habsburg jaw and inbreeding and things like that. So I said, yeah, why? I, I should write something. But I didn't want to write a simple history of my family because there are many good histories of my family that you can read. So I said, why don't I make it a bit different? And, and it was born in a talk that I gave in Boston. Um, I, I, I talked to a group of people and, and they asked me to talk about what are sort of the, the most important principles of your family. And I, of course, as a Catholic Habsburg, my first thought is immer to faith. Afterwards, marriage, you know, and I said, no, no, the, there are some non-Catholics here. So you cannot overwhelm them automatically with your Catholic faith. Go and find other things. And then I began making a list, preparing the talk. And then I called a few uncles and I looked into books of some of my cousins and I realized, wow, there are really a few points that we've always been standing for, for the last 800 years. And then I made the jump and said, wait a minute, some of these things don't seem to have very good press nowadays, or they may almost have disappeared in our society today. Why is that so and wouldn't it perhaps be good to bring them back into discussion? And all of this ended up in this book. And and uh, yeah, you know, I have to tell you something, Parker. It's impressive because you're the first person outside of the the publishers and my and my uh, my editors who has actually read the book. And the things you told me about my book now in the first minutes shows to me that uh, you understand what this is about. You can explain to me what this book is about. And that's a very cool experience for an author, I can tell you.
0: I'm so glad because I really want to get to the history of the Habsburgs. And I've talked to a guy who's a theologian, historical. His name is Craig. I said, hey, I'm talking to a descendant from the Habsburgs. Do you have a question you want me to ask him. And he says, all I know is about the hairlip. That's literally what he said. I'm not I trying to be offended. Okay. <laughs> He was like, but give me the link so I can listen to it later. (laughs) I said, I will. But I'm telling you right now, dear listener, when you finish reading this book, you're going to know that that is nothing compared to the impact that the Hasbro have had on world history and European history in general. And one question I want to ask you, Edward, is this. When you realize that you are a descendant of a family that has had such an impact what does that mean for you as that descendant?
1: Well, the interesting thing about being a descendant of such a family, and of course about embracing that heritage, is that it it provides you with a ready-made identity. (laughs) Most people have to find who they are. We Habsburgs in a way know who we are, and we can look it up in a history book. We can see it in a in a portrait gallery, where you will see portraits of your ancestors. I like to tell as a story of how we, uh, what that means for us is: you sit in school, and imagine Parky is sitting in school, and you're you're a Habsburg. Whenever the word Habsburg pops up in history class, everybody turns around and stares at you, and you blush, and the teacher looks at you, tells you, "Well, I don't have to talk about this because I'm sure Mr. Habsburg knows all about it." And of course you don't because you're like 10 years old and you're more interested in Star Trek than in Habsburg history. So you, you begin to say, well, I have to find out something about my family history because they will always ask me. This will happen again next week because the Habsburgs are basically everywhere in European history over the last 18 years. So then you, begin to, you begin to read, you begin to ask your parents, your uncles, and you ask them, what does it mean to be a Habsburg today? What does it mean to belong to such an old family, but a family that doesn't rule anymore? We don't have an emperor anymore. We don't live in a monarchy. What does it mean? And my father always boiled it down to responsibility. People will will look at you, and whatever you do will be more visible. If you do something good, people will notice it more. If you do something bad, people will notice it more. You have a responsibility, like a a famous cartoon character's uncle once said, And with great powers come great responsibilities. It's the same here. We have a responsibility for society, I would say, for helping peace between nations. We have a responsibility for standing for our faith, for family. All these things come in the package. You have to decide whether you want to embrace it or rebel against it. But many of us embrace it. So many of us are married and have many children. Many of us are devout Christians. Many of us um, work for the furthering of understanding between countries. This is how it works. And then, of course, it's, it's just incredibly cool to be a Habsburg. Um, not only because you have these great ancestors and, you know, they're royal families who did horrible things. The Habsburgs never did the horrible things. We did wonderful things. We had, we had lots of children and marriage and all that. And the other thing is you have cousins everywhere in the world. So if you travel to – you can close your eyes, put your finger on the globe or on the map of Europe, you will travel there. There will be a Habsburg somewhere that you can that you can stay with. You know, I mean, that that is cool too. You will always know who you are. And that is one chapter of the book is know who you are. So it's a cool thing to be a Habsburg. Really, I can tell you.
0: I love what you said about knowing who you are. And when you have such a family that has affected world history, being connected to that helps too. Many people are struggling with knowing who they are. And we would say that I know who I am in Christ. Christ gives me my identity. And one thing that comes through for my dear listener out there is that the Hasbergs were a very devout family. They really pushed through your faith. It has to be real. And I always say on the show, be real. The Hasbergs were very devout Catholics and they wanted to make sure their subjects were. I was telling Edward before we started recording, i'm baptist so we're protestants right but one thing that you said before the 30 years war one of your ancestors listened to what martin luther had to say they did listen they gave him a fair hearing and that is admirable and he said why would i believe what you're saying over a thousand years of church tradition and church teachers if he believed less maybe he would have had different ideas but because he truly believed that we are supposed to bring the world for christ through the catholic church this is what we are supposed to do as monarchs as we believe we have to lead our subjects to believe and i found that really admirable in this book now you don't go into too much detail one thing you say throughout the book you're not a professional historian you're actually viewing these events as someone who is Look through time, look what people say about your family, and you come to your own conclusions. And one thing about the Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times, it's a very personal book. Do You talk about the seven rules of the Habsburg Way. Rule number one, get married and have lots of children.
1: The Habsburgs were a family of counts in, in a corner between Germany and Switzerland in 1273. And the first Habsburg was put on the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. And the only Roman Empire is not an empire like in Star Wars, where an evil emperor rules and collects power and money and all that. The only Roman Empire was a conglomeration of different kingdoms, dukedoms, princedoms. And they were all always quarreling with each other and fighting with each other. The emperor was something like the judge trying to keep it all in balance by good diplomacy, by good relations. You couldn't afford to simply take your army and smash someone. That was not... The thing you did when you were holding remember you tried to keep countries together and you did that very easily by having lots of children and marrying them off and fostering relation between countries in the best possible way by marriage by love by families having children now this is a concept nowadays of course i don't i don't um I don't say that people should be married off anymore uh, by their parents, although I always like to joke with my children that they don't have to worry about falling in love and all that because we've all organized it after they were born. They can lean back. It's all already arranged. we, we, We do that for fun. What I'm seeing is, but not just for the Habsburgs, I believe we are built that way. Human beings are built for family, are built for raising children. With God's help, of course, not everybody can have children, but so many people choose not to have children. Uh, or choose to have one and a half children. And I just say, you're missing out on so much. I tried also in my book to give a bit of a feeling of that family life in the Habsburg family. The rules, the seven rules for turbulent times are not just for monarchy, and they're not just for Habsburgs. What I'm proposing is these seven rules can be, uh, can be lived by everybody. I mean, there's one rule could be brave in battle or have a great general. I don't think that every one of us is called to to fight on a battlefield or have a general, but you you can put this onto every life situation. Brave in battle goes in your work life and in your family life. And so what I say is these are things that I propose for every single one of us, for our society, and that we should ask of our politicians. That is a very serious point of my book because while I I listed the things that the Habsburg stood for, and then I looked around and say, why are many of our politicians? not standing for these values anymore. Why? And I say because people don't don't ask them to be like that. People don't aspire of their politicians to having that level of commitment that the Habsburgs had over the last centuries for um, their subjects. So I think this is something for ourselves, for society, but also for our politicians to ask of them.
0: And I'm going to read a quick excerpt here. You say here... In 1910, the old emperor met with the former president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, in Hoffberg, In the Hofburg. When the former president and Nobel Peace Prize winner asked the emperor to explain to him exactly what he was doing, implying, I suspect, that elected parliaments and governments had made the emperor's role a superfluous anachronism, the emperor answered simply, the idea of my office is to protect my peoples from their politicians. I leave you with this question, who protects the voters from their politicians today? That was just a really good excerpt that I wanted to read to our listeners. It lets us know that The monarchy had a place that's very much different from a democratic process that most of us are familiar with. And as you read the Habsburg way, Seven Rules of Turbulent Times, you'll see that. And I love how you make the point, Edward, that these aren't just for the monarchy. They're for everybody on a government level, as well as a personal level, as well as a general level just to live by. The first was to get married. The second was to be Catholic and practice your faith. And that meant being real with your beliefs. Absolutely. At the
1: beginning of the chapter,
0: I I, I tip my hat to
1: all the other Christian <laughs> um, churches and confessions and say, I'm sorry, I'm enthusiastic for a Habsburg. The Habsburgs were Catholic, full stop. But what I encourage everybody is to be strong in your faith, to have a personal relationship with Christ and to live according to that. Uh, it's just in the case of the Habsburgs, it was Catholic.
0: It may have been Catholic, but they also had the Reformation come through. They had the Enlightenment come through. But the Catholic Foundation was still there in the Habsburgs. And you'll find out more about that when you read The Habsburg Way. That's available wherever books are sold. So make sure you go ahead, pick up your copy of The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times today. And I need to tell our listeners, you may think that when you get this book, you may think, oh, this is going to be some massive tome of insight and advice and it's not it's it's really a short book but usually when you get to the point you get to the point very quickly and there are some amusing notes in here and one thing I got to say as a romance writer there's a lot of love in Hasburgs <laughs> okay? lots of love is it the Hasburg family uh you talk about the marriages that different Habsburgs have had which of those marriages when you think back on it is your favorite one
1: oh that's unfair that's unfair Parker you can't ask me that <laughs> Uh, I would say I would give you two two marriages, one from the 16th 15th century and one from the 20th century. Um, the one from the 15th century, of course, is the marriage of Emperor Maximilian the Last Knight uh, um, to the beautiful Mary of Burgundy. He was the son of the emperor. He had no money. He was um, he was engaged to marry her one day, and then her father died in her in dukedom of Burgundy. And she was alone, without help, and the French king was attacking Burgundy, and she just said, my knight, come and save me with your army. He had no army. He had a few friends, a few weapons, no money, and he set off along the danube with his friends, and the army grew and grew and grew and grew. And he arrived just a few days before the French. He arrived in Burgundy um, on his last money, but beautiful on his horse, on his white horse in shining armor, in fact, they said he looked like an arch- archangel in the in the evening sun. And they got married the next morning, and they had the greatest love story of their time. It was the royal wedding of the century. They loved each other very, very much. And they hadn't met each other ever. Their first meeting was then. They had written letters. So that's why I say uh, uh, dating sites, Christian dating sites can be something very useful um, because they just knew each other through letters, but it, they hit it off. The other story that, of course, I will speak about is Blessed Emperor Karl, um, a great favorite among all my young nephews and nieces and also very, very many fans of this couple in the United States. I could tell I was last October, I was in, in Dallas, Texas. I gave a talk in a conference hall with 700 people, most of them young, wanted to learn about Blessed Emperor Karl. He was the last emperor of the Habsburg um, Empire. He uh, He was in the last two years of the First World War 1916 to 1918 he was married they had eight children they loved each other very very much and his definition of marriage which he said to her the day before they got married he said now we'll have to help each other into heaven and that was that was that that's just that because this is what a christian marriage is about um now of course they also loved each other they had lots of children they were both very good looking a wonderful couple humble, warm-hearted, and uh, yes, and I still had the honor to meet uh, Empress Zita when I was a, a young boy and she was a very old lady. I, I was able to meet an Empress. And uh, even in her old age, there are, there are nice YouTube videos where you can see interviews with her when she was old. She was a very gracious woman, a bit like the Queen of England, I suppose was. She had this incredible way of turning to every child in the room when you talked and involving them in conversation asking them their opinion, telling us stories from the past, but also asking what we experienced. Very impressive. So I would say these two couples are my favorite marriages in the family, and of course my own, but uh, I'm not in the book, so.
0: I actually was going to say, and your own, I have been just enjoying getting to know your family. And dear listener, you're going to enjoy getting to know the Habsburg in a more very intimate way by a Habsburg themselves. So make sure you go ahead, pick up your copy of the Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times, available wherever books are sold. Now, I wanna get into a concept you talk about here in this book. I found it very interesting. It's called subsidiarity. And I want you to explain that to our listeners today.
1: I think it's one of the most important words what it means in a very short form is that the higher level should never be doing what the lower level can do. It is the antithesis to a strong centralism. My theory is, and I mean, many people say that, it's, and it's also part of Christian social teaching, man is made locally. We live locally, we think locally. Like the American, um, the United States of America are built from, from bottom to top. You be- begin with the home, then you have the township, then you have the county, then you have the state. The centralist elements in the United States should be very low because the richness of the United States are the different states. And This is not only good politics, but it's also something that fits very much with human being. We are built like that. We can understand things that are happening around us. We are not built, and this is a very strong theory of mine, and in the book you can tell we are not built for global. We are not built for globalism. And it's also a problem that if decisions are being taken on a level far away from the local level, on a higher and higher level, then there is no democratic responsibility. What I mean is, sometimes we have the impression nowadays that decisions about politics aren't taken anymore by our local um, politicians, but by people on a higher, higher level, on global level, in globalist groups. And these things are imposed from above on two people on the ground. And then it's not the idea how democracy should work. Democracy should be, I vote for politicians and they act according what the majority of the people believe. But here we have things that are decided on a level that never goes to vote. So what I see here is, if we return to the principles of subsidiarity and in the United States, that means give strength to the states, let the, the powers to the central organs of the United States be limited. In Europe, this means every single nation should be respected in their habits, in their, in, their, in their laws, in their rights, in their languages. And there should not be centralism by Brussels, the European Union. There is a tendency, centralize everything from Brussels, and there is a tendency to mix and mingle into the politics on local level by an institution far higher. Subsidiarity is a principle that says let things on the level where they can best be decided. And I think this is very good. And one one Habsburg emperor that without using that word said something very similar 500 years ago was Charles V who ruled over Spain and uh, Belgium, Netherlands and uh, a great part of the world because the Spanish crown had just began to take part of the world. And he said to his son, Philip II, if you rule over different nations, you have to respect their laws, their rights, their languages, their religion, or you're in real trouble. And I think this is this a principle that we can live with today.
0: I think you make a very good point. We're meant to be locally based, and family is that structure. For a dear listener out there, as you start to go through the hasburg way you start to see this theme so you get married you have a family and you teach that family to be strong to the faith and as you teach that family to be strong to the faith you learn how to take care of things on a local level so if the kids are acting up it's not the state that takes care of the kid you take care of your own kid and so that goes straight into the next principle which is stand for law and justice and your subjects so you start to see this theme that goes through the book as you read The Hasperk Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times, available wherever books are sold. So you want to go ahead and get this book. We only touched on a few subjects in here, but you can tell this is a richly detailed, very involved, multi-layered book that I know you are going to enjoy. And so I want to talk about stand for law and justice and your subjects. Now, this is where it gets a little hazy for some of us who are Americans about your subjects. I don't belong to the state. I don't belong to a king, you know. So let's talk about that. So what do you mean by stand for law and justice? We could kind of know that, hopefully on a common sense level, that law and justice, but you say for your subjects. Let's talk about that.
1: Blessed Emperor Carl, you will read this when you get to the chapter about dying well. Blessed Kall, the last emperor of the Habsburg family, um, he uh, lost the war, went into exile with his family. And then he was on the little island of Madeira off the coast of Africa. And one day he walked past a church and he stood there for a long time and he nodded and he said, yes, yes, I will do it. And then his wife later on asked him, what did you do there? And he said, I offer God my life so that my people can have peace. I offered God my life so that my people can have peace. And a few weeks later, he got seriously ill, and he had a long, protracted, very painful um, disease and finally death. And all the time he was praying for his people, for the people in Austria, Hungary, and he was offering his dying and his and his pain and all for his people. Now, I ask you, when was the last time you realized that the politician was ready to give his life for his people? Why is that not something we encounter more often nowadays. And what I try to explain in my book is that if you are an heir to a monarchy, and I'm in the privileged position to have met with a few of the current kings when they were still princes in training. And uh, when you grow up as an heir to a monarchy, uh, you learn everything about your country. You learn the sorrows, the pains, the joys of your country. You get to meet all the players. You get to know all the fault lines that run through your country, all the potential problems. You watch how your father or your mother deal with that. You know how your grandparents dealt with the same thing. And you know that one day you will have to deal with these problems as you are raised to serve. Now, I don't know how many politicians can say of themselves that they have been raised to serve their country. A Monarch always does that. You are being raised to serve. It's not about you. It's about your country for all your life and one day your son or your daughter will have to live with the decisions you made you cannot just steal yourself out now that one of the temptations of politics today is that you you try to you try to get as many connections possible you do your job job well but you know that at some point you could just jump off the board and go into business and earn lots of money and have good connections and will never be bothered again with that while a monarch cannot jump off and say, that's it, i I mean, they do it sometimes, but it's not a good example. And so what I'm saying is, the monarchy has been given a very bad rap, especially in the United States. The monarchs I've met, and I've met a few in Europe, are very, very different. And they have virtues that many, many politicians nowadays don't have. And can't, I can't blame them. I can't blame them because they haven't been raised to serve. Monarchs are being raised to serve. Why I'm saying this, I'm not saying that anybody in the states is is a subject now because this speaking about Habsburg, what I'm saying is we should ask a bit more from our politicians uh, fighting for the country, putting their own interests behind the interests of the people, and the, that's what i'm trying to 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 point out in that chapter of the book.
0: I love this, and you could just see how some of these ideas especially for me, they were kind of radical to think of a monarch in this way, because it is a foreign concept, particularly here in the West about monarchs. It's a very foreign concept. But when I was reading this book, I started to really get entrenched with this idea about the monarchy. And I joked with uh, Edward beforehand, I said, I probably would have been a Tory <laughs> back in the <laughs> 1700s when uh, we were, I'm, I'm joking, dear listener. I'm, I'm maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, you know, we'll never know. I love the various themes that are going on through here because you're not just talking about the Hasburg way just for governments. You're also talking about it for people too. You know, these yes, are concepts yes. that can go from government to people. And that's truly the Hasburg way is reaching people where they are. And one thing I noticed in the story is that the Habsburgs were pretty good at not letting their position get to their heads because they were travel incognito they would go to yes. different places. People would not know who they were. There's a really funny story of one of your ancestors that was in a carriage. I'll let you tell it, though.
1: I want to tell two stories. One, one very short. The first the first emperor, uh, first Habsburg emperor, Rudolf, he was famous for having a really big nose. And if you look at his uh, coffin, at his stone monument, you see that he's this huge nose. And one day he was traveling incognito, and he was traveling across across a, a, a path, a, across a mountain and it was very narrow. And there was um, there was a farmer coming the other way and it was very narrow, they, they barely got past each other. The farmer said, if you would put your nose aside, I might be able to step through. And the emperor said, to him, took his nose with a finger, pushed it to the side and said, see, it works, you can pass me. So that was Rudolf. And uh, <laughs> and the other story is, um, is of course Joseph II who, very it was very eager to be a modest and humble and uh and uh, and, and, and frugal man and he traveled incognito in a in a carriage through, through austria and he there was there was a guy whose carriage had broken down so he took him he took him into his into his carriage and to say good man i'll bring you to the next town and so while they were rolling the other guy had no idea that he was sitting in the same carriage as the emperor so um, the other guy, because he was bored, looking out of the window, said, let's make a guessing game. Let's make a guessing game. Trying to guess what I ate for lunch. And the emperor said, uh, well, I don't know. Chicken fricassee? say, no, uh, omelette. Uh, no, did you have a steak? No. And in the end, he, he told him, I-, I had knuddles. And he slapped heartily, slapped the leg of the emperor with his hand. And then the emperor says, okay, good. Now it's my turn. Uh, we don't know each other so try to guess who I am and he said uh, well are you a soldier and he said yes uh, I may be but perhaps I'm more than that He said, you look pretty young to be an officer are you an officer yes I think I am and then he said are you, are you a colonel are you a general and he said Oh yes yes but I may be more and in the end he got pale in his face and said uh, don't tell me you're the emperor and he says yes I am and he heartily slept the the leg of the other guy and the other guy said stop the carriage i have to get out i'm sorry i slapped the leg of my emperor and he said no 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 no. you had no idea where i was but i knew who i was so it's okay we we're 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 done (laughs) so that was the story of joseph
0: there is a lot of that in this story of the Hasbergs they were very much down-to-earth people and it brings you to the next part of that which is know who you are and the emperor knew who he was and but he didn't let that get to his head either see that's the thing the Hasburgs understood their position what they're supposed to do but they didn't let it get to their heads now I was laughing a little bit as you were telling that story because it also reminded me if I may of a Queen Elizabeth story where um somebody came to visit her they had no idea she was the queen had no idea and then she said i wonder when he goes back home <laughs> when he finds that out she never told him that she was the queen so they said queen elizabeth had a lot of humor and and yes. like that yes. and then the sixth rule is be brave in battle or have a good general and then the seventh rule is die well and then you kind of go and you kind of end it off with the Habsburgs today which is yourself you're you're the descendant of the Habsburgs. And so I want our listeners to go ahead pick up your copy of The Habsburg Way. It's available online wherever books are sold. You know, Edward, I have had such a great time talking to you today and learning about the Habsburgs, learning about how you feel about being a descendant, learning about these ways that can be applied to governments and to families at the same time, just the interconnectedness of this book. And that also is the Habsburg way. They were more than just trying to lead people, they wanted to be part of the people, and they wanted it's... to be part of the people that they were over, not because they felt as if they're supposed to just. I'm supposed to lord over you. It was, they were supposed to serve the people. Now we did get a couple of questions that I want you to answer and talk to. Jeremy from Dolphin, Alabama says, did your monarchical family ever adhere to the divine right of Kings? And if they did, can you give an example of it and how it shook out for him or how how it went for him? And more importantly, if you disagree with it and why? I hope that question makes sense, Edward.
1: It's a complicated question that you could talk about a long time. I would answer him like this, saying the Habsburgs were very conscious that being a ruler of such a great uh, country or countries was not as much a divine right of kings, but mostly an incredible responsibility before God. Every single Habsburg ruler knew that one day when they were going to die, not only was God going to judge them as, as Christians and decide whether they lived well, but he was most of all going to ask him, were you a good emperor? Did you wield your powers in a just and good way? I know they, some of them agonized about that all their lives. Am I a good emperor? So they were, I would say, very much aware of their huge responsibility and that they would one day have to account, give account of that to God. And I, I, that's why I encourage in my book, strongly encourage political leaders to be religious. And to speak about their faith because if i know of a political leader what he or she believes in i can hold them accountable to these values and i also know that they will one day have to uh, give accountants to god about what they did as politicians so that's how i say see the divine element in abstract politics
0: we got a question and a familial connection with this next question is from Christensen in South Korea. And Christensen says, my ancestor was a Hungarian Jewish rabbi who became a Christian in England. And he said his last name, which his last name is Lo, comes from him. It used to be Lo, which is German for lion. But the family story is he fled to England because he supported the wrong guy for emperor of the Austro-Hungarian empire. So that was the personal antecedent. Uh, for the connection here. But he also says, what sway does the Habsburg have now in Austrian politics? I would say next
1: to nothing in Austrian politics. Um, I would say a bit more in Hungary. You have two Habsburgs as ambassadors for Hungary. Um, uh, A joke that runs on the streets of Budapest is a bit nasty, is that the, the Austria lives off the Habsburgs and Hungary lives with the Habsburgs. (laughs) um it's 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 a bit nasty um but what what i'm saying is no we are not in politics currently in austria uh one of the reasons is that the habsburgs weren't even allowed to run for president in austria because we were seen as tyrants of course here for a long time Mm. one of my uncles ulrich from habsburg managed to change that law a few years ago because his daughter-in-law went to court and said until a minute before my wedding with a habsburg i was able to become president of austria the moment i tied the knot it was over and i couldn't anymore isn't that some sort of racism
0: oh my gosh um,
1: yes i mean she has a point right so um because of that case we can become presidents again of austria But uh, we are, of course, not used to being presidents. We are used to being emperors. We still have to learn that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You know what? I love that. I may take that with me. I may take that with me, Edward. And then the last question we got was from Christine in Pennsylvania. Christine Christine says, where do you think the future of the monarchy is headed?
1: Christine, that's a very, very good question. Um, Unfortunately, I see many of the monarchies, becoming more and more weak source because either you have a monarchy or you don't have a monarchy, a monarchy. That is something like a glorified presidency with a bit of crown on top of it. Uh, A a monarchy where the monarch has to basically sign every law by the parliament without ever being able to say no. Um, And a monarchy where the monarch has to read as his monarch speech, something written by the prime minister of the country is not really a monarchy anymore. Either you have a monarch with the power to say nay and not just yay or you... So I'm seeing seeing, uh, monarchies going into difficult times. Um, I also see that, unfortunately, many of our current monarchies are commencing to embrace woke ideas, globalist ideas um, instead of faith and therefore difficult times for monarchies. But I've always have hope. Monarchy has been the predominant and Thomas Aquinas says so best form of state for the last several thousands of years. And uh, it, it will always come back perhaps in different form and shape. So thank you for that very intelligent question because it's a good one.
0: I thought when she gave us that question, it was a good one too, because you have a clash of ideals with different government systems and you just wanna see, okay, what's the best one for people? people tend to find out (laughs) throughout time they tend to find out what's the best system of government so i love how you also talk about well i should say this you also dispel myths about monarchs that they were the emperor like in star wars and those of you you know i'm not a star wars fan so i only watched the movie like maybe once or twice but um i'm a trekkie through and through but but um you know you got the emperor and this galactic emperor that's just destroying and tyrannical and everything else and you show that the monarchs were to serve because the catholic faith even the christian faith in general our king served see he washed feet he died for our sins so that's all we're really mirroring is that and i love that you put that in there so get your copy of the hasburg way seven rules for turbulent times available wherever books are sold and where has been so much fun having you on the show today really really enjoyed having you and cannot wait to have you back i hope and have you back real soon
1: very soon and i cannot wait for you to write one historic novel about your first Habsburg in the coming years
0: oh it is going to happen if it doesn't happen this year it is definitely <laughs> going to happen by next year i was telling edward dear listener uh there's a section of book where he talks about his ancestors there's ten brothers ten <laughs> ten brothers um and he calls him the glorious generation. And when you read your book, you find out why he calls him the glorious generation. And I said, you know, I could do a romance from every brother in this whole thing. <laughs> so don't be surprised if it pops up. If Edward, I just suddenly hit your DMs on Twitter and say, hey, I got a question. <laughs> you know where it's coming from. So dear listener, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know I thoroughly did. Edward, once again, thank you for being with us. And I have to give you, I have to send you off with a royal address so i think the proper term is your grace right i think that's your grace is your proper term so your grace thank you so much for gracing us today on the parker j cole show to our listener thank you for listening to the Archduke austria edward hasburg and me just chit chat about the hasburg way seven rules for turbulent times you have a wonderful absolutely glorious blessed day and god bless